we are between sermon series this morning. Uh, last week, we finished our series uh, on work, and next week, we will begin our summer series on the parables of Jesus. Uh, because we're between series, I asked uh, Pastor Joel if I might have this week to share with you something that the Lord has really laid on my heart over the past two years. Uh, you can wait till the end to decide if you want to thank him for that or encourage him not to do that in the future. Uh, but it's something that I think I've become convinced is of first importance. And yet, I also have realized over the past couple years that it is something that is easy for us to take for granted. Uh, and so I want to give it special attention this morning. And like so much else, uh, this thing I'd like to discuss this morning um, really rose to the top of my attention during and in the midst of our efforts as a church to respond to COVID-19. Now, I know this is going to come as a shock to some of you, so please try and control your outbursts or your responses. But it turned out, over the past two years, as we were trying to figure out what to make of COVID and how to respond to it, that we didn't all agree on everything. I know, I know, it's shocking and surprising. We had people here in this very sanctuary, in this congregation, who held different opinions about the origin of COVID, about the severity of COVID, about the risks posed by COVID. And on the response side, we, we had people who thought very differently about how we should respond. Uh, people who thought differently about how, how long we should be virtual only. Uh, how long and which people should mask. Uh, we had people all over the spectrum on all of these complicated uh, individual issues. We did. And, and I have to admit to you, well, let me say, I'm not trying to belittle that right now. I'm, I am trying to keep it a little bit light. Uh, but on the contrary, I bring it up precisely because these were important decisions. These were serious issues, as I think we are all by now well aware. And I have to admit, because of that, because it was serious, and because we had all these different opinions, it made trying to navigate through that really complicated and difficult. And I'll confess to you that on more than one occasion, I thought to myself, man, this would be a lot easier if we just, you know, magically were to agree on everything. Wouldn't that be easier? It would make this it would still be hard, it would still be complicated, but it would be easier. And I, I can tell you, with a great deal of confidence, from my vantage point now, looking back with hindsight, that that was true. It would have been easier for our church, for our leadership, if we all had agreed on everything related to COVID. Uh, many things were made much more difficult, much harder for all of us, because we have people here who disagree about those things different opinions, people who face different levels of risk. And I have to tell you that when you wrestle through two long years made more complicated by the simple fact of those differences, uh, differences in risk, differences in opinion, differences in background, um, you, you, could get, you could get easily to the point, I could understand how you would arrive at the point where you would just wonder, man, wouldn't, would church be easier if we all just sorted into smaller, more homogeneous groups? Wouldn't things be simpler and less complicated and less contentious if we just divided ourselves into smaller groups that all agreed on more of these things? So why don't we? Why don't we do that? 
Well, what I'd like to do this morning is to make my case for why we shouldn't sort ourselves according to our differences. I know others would make a different case, but I'm preaching this morning, so you're going to have to listen to mine. And it's my firm conviction, here's my claim that I am going to defend this morning. It is my firm conviction that within the church, within any one local community of worship such as our own, that diversity of all kinds, tribes, tongues, nations, political parties, social and economic backgrounds, all of those kinds of diversity should be celebrated because they testify visibly and clearly to the power and truth of the gospel. Here's what I mean by that. I believe that when two people who are, who are different, they are separated by some barrier, whether it be of thought or background or status, when those two people nevertheless show up on Sunday morning and they stand shoulder to shoulder to worship Jesus, I believe that that becomes a living testimony to the lordship of Jesus over all people. When those two people take communion together, they become a living testimony to the power of salvation and to the reality of God's family. That's what I believe. Now, I want to be clear. I am not going to pretend this morning that it's not hard. It is hard. I want to acknowledge that right up front. But what I believe to the core of my being is that it is worth it. It is worth it. Now, I suspect, I assume, most of you already agree with me in that. But this morning, what I want to do, not so much, is try and change minds. Though, if you don't agree, I hope I do change your mind. But if you already agree, what I'd like to do is I would like to provide some theological and biblical foundations for that claim. So the next time, the next time, whatever it is, when we find ourselves frustrated, uh, either corporately or individually, because we're trying to navigate through a situation that's made more difficult and more complicated by our differences, that we'll have the will to push through it. So I want to root that belief, that claim, in theology in the biblical text this morning. I want to begin by doing that, uh, by, by laying what I would think of as the theological foundation. So turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. We'll start with a theological foundation, and then we'll look at how the early church applied it. All right, Matthew 28, verse 16. This is Jesus, the last words he says before he ascends into heaven, speaking to his disciples. It said, The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. All right, so I want to start for our foundation by looking at that first sentence that Jesus says. Words, in my opinion, we all too often rush over to get to the commission part that we're all so familiar with. But this first sentence is crucial. Uh, It is the foundation, and it also is the motive power for what comes after. Jesus says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Now, 
I would suggest to you that if you aren't already familiar with that and already familiar with that belief and claim, you'd find that to be an incredible thing to say. Hard to believe, right? All authority in heaven on earth has been given to him. Well, what exactly is Jesus claiming here? Well, among other things, I put it to you first that Jesus is claiming that through his resurrection, God has revealed him to be the rightful Lord of all creation. And that means, as Jesus himself says, that all authority is now his. It means that there is nowhere in creation where Jesus' word is not law. It means there is nowhere you can go in the whole cosmos where Jesus is not Lord. Now, that's a bold claim. It just is. We should should recognize that. But it's not an empty one. As we noted, we already have in the resurrection a, a pretty forceful vindication of Jesus' life and ministry. That was God in a pretty visible, irrefutable way saying yes to the mission and life of Jesus. But we have a second. Right after Jesus says these words, we get uh, the ascension. Uh, It's Ascension Sunday, it just happens to be. Uh, And here's what happens at the ascension. Immediately after Jesus says the words we just read, he is taken bodily, physically, up into heaven where he sits down at the right hand of God the Father. He is literally, in the moments after he says these things, enthroned as the Lord of all creation. Now, it's worth noting, Matthew doesn't record that happening, but we know that's what happens from the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts. Now, why why do I think that is confirmation of Jesus' words? Well, those of you who know your Old Testament know that heaven is the throne room of creation. It is the place from which God rules the cosmos. And so Jesus has just gone to join him and to rule alongside him. Uh, In fact, that's what Stephen sees later in Acts chapter 7, right before he dies. He sees heaven opened up and Jesus standing at the right hand of the God of creation. It's what John sees in his, re- in his vision in Revelation chapter 5. He sees one who looks like a lamb who was slain, seated on the throne with the Ancient of Days. And what that means, friends, is that Jesus did not just claim to be the Lord of all creation and then go about his life. He claimed to be the Lord of all creation and then walked into the throne room of creation where he sat down and rules to this day. Jesus is the Lord of all creation. That's the first claim. Second, and this is crucial for my argument this morning, Jesus is claiming specifically to be the Lord of all people and all nations. Notice verse 19, what we usually call the Great Commission. Jesus, having declared that all authority in heaven on earth is his, says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, of all nations. Now, did you pick up on my real subtle verbal cue there around the word therefore? Right? That's important. This sentence begins with therefore. Therefore is a logical connector that tells us that what comes afterward is a consequence of or dependent upon what comes before. And in this case, what that means, what that means is that the gospel must be taken to 
all nations because Jesus is the Lord of all nations. Now, quick note here. I am stressing specifically this morning that he is not just the Lord of all people, that is, all individuals. He is the Lord of all nations. There's a difference there. Uh, And it's an important difference, I think. Jesus, when he becomes Lord of all creation, does not immediately set about flattening all peoples, all cultures, and all nations into one large homogenous group. It's not what he does. Uh, He tells us something different. What he does is he becomes the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He becomes the Lord of all peoples as they are. What that means Uh, as Matthew 28 tells us, is that Jesus has become the king of the Jews. Yes, certainly. But he is also declaring that he is the king of the Romans. He is the king of the Ethiopians. And he is the king of the Greeks. And that means the Jews will enter his kingdom as Jews. Swedes will enter as Swedes. And the Han Chinese will enter as Han Chinese. The lordship of Jesus will not flatten all of those groups into one. He will rule them all. Now, if you're suspicious of my claim here, you're a little bit skeptical, or if you're just struggling to wrap your mind around what that's going to look like, I got good news, we can cheat. We can jump ahead to the end of the story. Uh, Revelation chapter 21, second to last chapter of the last book of the Bible. Uh, Here, John is given a vision of of the end of the beginning, so to speak. Uh, It's after the tribulation. It's after Satan and evil have been fully and finally defeated. John sees the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven as a gift from God. And he goes on to describe the city in great detail. And when you get on down to verse uh, 23, we read that the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamp. And then he says this, the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. One, on no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. I love this picture. Again, even at the very end, when evil is finally defeated, even then, we aren't all flattened down into the same one group. Same language, same culture, same customs. No, no, what John sees is all of the nations streaming in to the kingdom of God. And each nation, he says, not flattened to be like all the others, but redeemed by the power of the gospel and by the lordship of Jesus. Each nation contributes its own unique glory to the glory of God and the kingdom of Jesus. In the end, John tells us, the new Jerusalem will be filled with people from uh, every nation living together under the lordship of Jesus. And the nations will no more shed their unique culture than we as individuals will shed our unique personalities. Instead, each group will contribute uniquely to the kingdom of the risen Jesus because he is the king of kings and the lord of lords. I have to admit, I just, I love this image. This is one of my favorite pictures from the book of Revelation. I think it should dazzle you and it should humble you, but it should not surprise you. 
or anyone who has heard the gospel. Because it is, I would argue, simply the outworking, the natural outworking of the lordship of Jesus. As Jesus himself tells us in Matthew 28 as clearly as he possibly can, he is the Lord of all creation. And so one day, all creation, all peoples, and all nations will recognize his lordship and contribute their own unique glory to his. All right. Still with me? That's our theological foundation. Jesus has been revealed as the Lord of all people. And so the gospel must go to all nations and all peoples because Jesus is the Lord of all nations and people. The next step I want to take this morning, we've got our foundation, is I want to look at, okay, what what does the early church do with that? How does the early church take that theology and put it into practice in the real world, on the ground? So turn with me if you would to Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Galatians 2, verse 11. Before we read it, let me set the stage for you a little bit. Uh, The church in Galatia, for a while, uh, was a church composed of Jewish and Gentile believers who, for a while, were worshiping together, eating together, and taking communion together, doing life together. But one day, uh, some, some visitors from Jerusalem showed up, and they looked around, and they were a little bit surprised to see Peter, the Apostle Peter of all people, sitting and eating at a table with Gentiles. And they, they thought to themselves, I don't know about this. And they, they ate at their own table. They, ate at their own. they didn't say anything, they just ate at their own table. Well, Peter noticed that, he starts to get a little self-conscious and uh, a little nervous, and he thought, well, uh-oh, maybe, maybe I should be eating at their table. So Peter starts eating at their table. And then the other Jewish believers in Galatia noticed Peter had left eating with them to go eat with this other group of Jewish believers from Jerusalem, and they thought, wait a minute. I mean, if if Peter thinks he needs to be eating with them and not with with these Gentile believers, maybe, maybe we should be eating with them and not with these Gentile believers. And so they leave, and they go to the other table in the other room. And before you know it, you now have a church that is fully segregated during its meals together. Gentile believers at this table in this room, Jewish believers at this table in another room. And Paul, when he discovers this, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say he's livid. He's, he's upset. Uh, and so we read this. Here's Paul's account of how he responds. He says, when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and to separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews then joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Now look what he says. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, and yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you are trying to force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Now, let me just say, there's a lot going on here, and in a a world where you guys have no lives, we would spend a, a lot longer on this part. Uh, But let me try and explain how I think Paul is applying that theology we just looked at to this situation. 
Let's start by just clarifying the situation here. Uh, What has caused this divide, and why is Paul so upset about it? Well, let's begin with the obvious. At the root of this problem for the church in Galatia is the simple fact that they have both Jewish and Gentile believers, right? We know that because Paul tells us, and because Peter, a Jew, had been eating previously with Gentile believers in this church. But now, after the arrival of some other Jewish believers, Peter and the Jewish believers began segregating themselves from the Gentiles during meals. Now, I want to pause for a moment just to remind us, if that really upsets you or if you think that's really weird, I just want to remind us that outside of the church at this point in history, and even still today at certain places, that was entirely normal. It was entirely normal, right? Uh, you wouldn't, in fact, you would not expect outside of the church to see Jews and Gentiles eating together. And if you came upon such a thing, you'd likely be a little bit surprised. And you'd be surprised because it was pretty common knowledge that the Jews had all sorts of customs and restrictions around food and drink, which they believed that they had received from God. Customs, which other people simply did not share and usually found onerous and unreasonable. And so the obvious, easy, natural solution was for both groups to just eat their meals separately. So when these two groups started gathering together in the church out of a common allegiance to Jesus, we should not be surprised to find that these, and no doubt other differences like circumcision, created friction and division within the church. We shouldn't be surprised. They created friction and division outside the church. Of course, there's going to be a tendency for those to create friction and division inside the church. Now, I've already touched on the simple solution to this problem, the one already deployed outside the church, which is just do these things like eating separately, right? That'd be an easy solution, no problem. We just do it in separate rooms. Still eating together, just different rooms. Or, to my mind, you've got two other easy solutions at hand, right? If you're Paul, you can say to the Jews, Get over it. This isn't the old covenant. It's the new covenant. You just need to start eating like Gentiles, right? So you just get rid of that difference. Say, no no more difference in eating habits. You Jews just need to start eating like Gentiles. Or, or Paul could say to the Gentiles, hey, we were here first. You were grafted into our people. So you need to start eating how we eat. You need to follow our customs. But did you notice Paul refuses to do any of those three things in fact, uh, he, specifically, um, he specifically gets after Peter for trying to coerce the Gentiles to eating like the Jews, right? But look at his response. What Paul actually says in verse 14 is that those who have segregated themselves are not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Here's what I think Paul is, is doing here. Paul is condemning This segregation, the division between Jew and Gentile within the church, this is why he's confronting Peter, but he refuses to condemn the differences. Do you see that? He refuses to tell the Jews to stop being Jews, and he refuses to tell the Gentiles to stop being Gentiles. He condemns the segregation without condemning the difference. What Paul insists on all throughout the letter of Galatians is a fellowship within the church that respects differences, 
not one that eliminates them. Paul will not allow the two groups to keep eating separately, but neither will he allow one group to just overwhelm the other and force their customs upon them. Now, why would Paul do this? Why, I mean, doesn't he know he is going to make life hard for this church from, from now on into forever? Doesn't he know that he's inviting difficulties and arguments and complications? Yes, he does. So why would he do it? Well, the answer for Paul, as he makes clear in verse 14, is that this is the kind of fellowship that the gospel itself creates. This is what the gospel creates. The gospel, this is what it does. It brings people together from different nations under the banner and lordship of Jesus. And so for Paul, that means that living out the gospel required a fellowship that respected differences because, catch this, because a Jew plus Gentile church testifies better and more powerfully and more clearly to the fact that Jesus is the Lord of Jews and Gentiles. Now, that's, my mother-in-law would tell me that's a, that's a classic pastoral run-on sentence, so let me, let me say it one more time, right? What Paul, the reason Paul insists on this is he, because, he says, listen, I'm insisting upon it because when you as the church eat and worship Jew plus Gentile, it is a better, clearer testimony to the fact that Jesus is the Lord of Jews and Gentiles. If you do it separately, we undermine, we undermine the power of our testimony. That's why Paul insists on it. All right. Well, if you're hanging in there, we now have our foundation, theological foundation. We have our early church practice. And, and again, don't take this for granted. It's amazing that we can actually, we have these letters, we can look and see how someone like Paul brings that theology to bear on the real world. And so now what I'd like to do is I'd like to close uh, by offering some application, uh, to taking that theology and early church practice and bringing it to bear specifically on our church and on the American church more generally. Now before I do that, I think it's important uh, to give you a little disclaimer here. I, I am not proposing universalism. I'm not suggesting that there's never a legitimate reason for a church to divide or for people to leave a fellowship. Those are hard things, but at times I think they are legitimate. And just to pick some obvious things, there are, I think, several the legitimate theological reasons. If you were to show up at your church one Sunday morning and all of a sudden uh, your pastor, your leadership told you, you know what, we've been thinking about it, uh, and we're not sure we buy this everyone's a sinner in need of a savior business. Well, that's a problem, right? If you showed up one Sunday morning in your church or your leadership all of a sudden said, you know what, we don't think it's important anymore to insist on the bodily resurrection of Jesus or of us. That'd be a hard thing. And I would say to you that if that was the situation and you couldn't work to change it, you're now at a church that's proclaiming a different gospel than what was handed down to the apostles. And it may be in that situation the right thing to do is to leave. Now, I get it. Those are hard and complicated and murky. There's no real clear line there. If you're looking for sort of a, a, a north star to navigate by, I would say you could do a lot worse than the EFCA's ethos. You know, in the essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and everything, charity. Uh, what that means, really, is that there are such things 
as essentials. Uh, There are truths that are more important than a superficial unity. And so I just want to acknowledge that. I'm not saying that's not the case. I believe that. There are truths that are more important than superficial unity. All right, now with that disclaimer out of the way, let me give you my applications. First, gathering together despite differences is both a beautiful outworking of the lordship of Jesus and at the same time, it is hard. It is both a beautiful outworking of the lordship of Jesus and it is hard and complicated. It just is. And I think we need to begin by acknowledging that we here at First Free, much like the church in Galatia, are home to believers who think, speak, eat, and vote differently from one another. We are, can I say, in a way that I love and for which I frequently give thanks, home to diversity of many, many kinds. Not long ago, uh, just as an example of this, we were brainstorming as a staff, I think it was for a video we were considering for a a Christmas Eve service, and we were trying to, to list, just off the top of our heads, the number of languages spoken by people in our church. And, you know, we started off but then we kept going, and we kept going. And, and I have to say, it, like, it like started out as like a brainstorming exercise, and it, it accidentally turned into worship, because we all just sat in awe and thought, man, look, look at who God has brought together here. Who could possibly do that except the Lord of all creation? He did it. That's, that's a tremendous, beautiful thing. Uh, As we've just seen over the past few weeks in our series on work, we are home to people who work in a wide variety of different fields. Uh, We are are home to people from different backgrounds in different states and different countries. We are home to people with different politics who vote very differently on, on many issues. We have even managed, you know, praise the Lord, to be a place where Vikings fans and Packers fans can gather together on a Sunday morning and worship and break bread on the very day their teams will face each other on the field. Friends, that reality that we we have is a beautiful testimony to the gospel. And it will, let's not run from it, it will on occasion make things harder and more difficult for us. But I want to say, I want to remind us, that's not unique to us. The church has been wrestling with how to worship together across significant cultural boundaries, literally from its inception. I mean, Galatians, that's first-generation church. You will find Paul, in fact, addressing this very negotiation, this balancing act in every single one of his letters. And that, to me, suggests the following. It suggests that we should be neither discouraged nor dismayed when this produces difficulty for us from time to time. It will. It always has. Again, hear me clearly. I am not arguing this morning that this will be easy. I'm arguing that it's worth it. I'm arguing that the gospel demands it. And I'm arguing that Jesus Christ is glorified when we work through it. That's my first application. Second, I am convinced that when we, with all of our differences, choose nevertheless to gather, eat, and worship together, we become a living testimony 
to the truth and power of the gospel about Jesus. In fact, I would argue, you know, I'm not trying to be combative, but I would defy you to come up with a better example. Come up with a better signpost to the truth of the gospel than the existence of local churches that bring together all sorts of different people under the lordship of Jesus. I don't know of a better one. What would be a better testimony to the fact that Jesus is the Lord of all nations and all people than to have people from all nations gathered here together to worship Jesus as the Lord? I heard something recently about our country that uh, I found a little bit concerning, but, but very plausible. I heard that uh, in a recent study, something like 80% of people uh, resp- who responded said that they would object to their child marrying somebody of a different political affiliation. 80% of people of Democratic voting parents would object to their child marrying a Republican, and something like 80% of Republican parents would object to their child marrying a Democrat. I know, I'm getting after all the fun hot-button issues this morning. I'm a little concerned by that, uh, frankly, but I'm not surprised. I mean, are any of you surprised to hear that? Uh, Whatever you make of it, what it tells us unequivocally is that the political divide in our country is a significant, it is a formidable barrier that separates people within our nation. It's formidable. If you're saying you you would object to your child marrying somebody of the other affiliation, that is a significant barrier. And by the way, I'm not trying to downplay the importance of some of those differences. Though there are differences on some issues that I would agree are extremely important, very significant issues for the future of our country. But what I would simply ask is this. Given that those are important, could we agree that that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, that he is in fact the only way to eternal life? And could we agree, number two, that that fact is more important than all of those other ones. If you can agree with me, if you can agree with each other on those two things, then I think there is room here for all of us. And I'll go further. I'll just say personally, I want you all here. I want all of you here. Because I want people who disagree on politics. I want people who are here from different backgrounds and with different jobs I want people here who, dis, who are different in a whole host of ways because I believe with the Apostle Paul to the core of my being that when we, different though we are, choose to gather together and worship Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we become a living testimony to that truth and to the power of the gospel. I want all of us here together because when we are here together, I think, that we and the world around us gets a glimpse, even, even if it's just you know dimly through a glass dimly, of the new Jerusalem. They get a glimpse of the new Jerusalem, of a glorious future where every nation and every people contributes uniquely to the glory of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Friends, I, what I want to say is, I think we already have some of that here together this morning. 
And I want us to protect it. And I want us to root it deeply and firmly in scripture and in historic Christian theology. And then I want us to grow it. And I believe that we do all of those things better when we do them together. Would you bow with me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, it's so easy to say what I just said and sing what we sang together this morning, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, uh, that you are God. And yet, Father, we also acknowledge that sinful as we are, that is a reality that is sometimes, maybe even oftentimes, difficult for us to work out. It's hard. But Lord, I give thanks because it is worth it. I thank you because in the moments where we do it, we get to see a glimpse of the glorious future that you have for all people. I give you thanks because you have provided your Holy Spirit to bind us together, to give us supernatural measures of grace and patience when we need it. And so God, I'm asking for it for our church. God, I pray that we would be a place that treasures the testimony that you have given us here, that treasures the way in which we are able to reflect the lordship of Jesus over all nations and peoples. God, might we protect it, might we celebrate it, and might we with joy bring that gospel truth to a world around us that so desperately needs to hear it. In your name we pray, amen.